It was just the 4th of May. Hi there, and welcome to Forgotten Scenes, where we're taking a look at little microbursts of culture that burned hot and then vanished. Sometimes they left brilliant little legacies. Sometimes they left nothing. We're going to talk about both. This first season is called The Freaks in the Barn, and we're talking about the glam psychedelic explosion of Sioux City, Iowa in the early 1970s. This is episode four, The Golden Age. I'm Keith Pilly. So, we've been talking about the psychedelic bands that sprung up in the wake of David Bowie's very brief exile in Sioux City, and the nascent scene that developed around them, and how none of this fit comfortably into the existing infrastructure of bars and venues in Sioux City in early 1973, threatening to choke the scene out before it really got rolling. Until, of course... Local car dealership scion Teddy Big Tex Lowry, thinking of Andy Warhol's factory in New York, stepped in and bought an old warehouse to be converted into a venue and a sort of cultural HQ for the Sioux City Freaks. This space, the barn, quickly took off and Lowry became one of the presiding figures of the local counterculture. We also talked about how the top tier of local freak bands, the Visceral Realists and Sammy Otto and the Jawbones, we're joined by the upstart militant proto-punks, the Thwarted. This week, with all of the pieces in place, the Sioux City Freakout enters its golden age. And, of course, every golden age also contains the seeds of its own end. By the summer of 1973, the scene in and around the barn constituted its own little mini-society within Sioux City. All of the participants, with the possible exception of Big Tex Lowry, had lives and jobs out in the mainstream, of course. But when they got done with work, and when other responsibilities allowed them, they'd all head towards the river and slip into an alternate reality at the barn. At the barn, on a given day in July or August of 1973, you might walk in and see a painter wearing boxing gloves that she dabbed in buckets of paint and then punched a huge canvas stretched on the wall. Maybe in the next bay, Big Tex Lowry might turn and tip his hat to you as he sat behind a movie camera, directing an experimental film about a woman who sings to plants. Maybe you're thirsty, so you walk over to one of the barn's bars, get a cheap drink, and head over to the music stage, where the thwarted are having a practice session that's open to spectators. Then you get tired of that, and the thwarted are notorious for practicing as loud as they possibly can, so you walk out to one of the neon and mylar-decked lounge areas at the back of the barn to accept a joint that's going around, and join into a heated conversation about whether all of humanity is part of a larger consciousness. Then, later on that night, back in the musical area, the visceral realists melt your brain with sound and take you on an expedition to Saturn. It was heady stuff. People at the time knew that they were living through something special. Billy Hoska said as much years later when he talked to the Curly in Times. Quote, You know how you're doing some kind of creative work and it gets going really good and you just enter that mode where it seems like time doesn't exist for you? That's what the back half of 73 and early 74 felt like in Sioux City. It was magic, man. Every day was something special. Writing music with my brother for the Realists playing shows with them a couple nights a week, catching shows from other great, great bands, and, you know, maybe this was the best part, having all these great conversations with the people in those other bands and just the people hanging out in the barn. 
People throw around the word community pretty cheap, but that's what it was, you know? It was a community. Never had another experience where I've been able to play a show so hot it felt like we were lifting people up off the ground, and then just comfortably been able to go out and smoke a joint and talk to the people in the crowd afterwards, and recognize that we were just like all different facets of the same big thing. It was humbling, and it was amazing. And as 73 ground on, the word got out. Before too long, it wasn't just people from Sioux City hanging out in the barn. End quote. Now, I'd like to go a little further into what Hoska was saying there at the end. The word really did get out, and this took several forms. For one thing, you had people coming to Sioux City from all over, but especially from other parts of the Midwest, to check out the scene, either for a few days or for the long term. We already mentioned one of these people, Jim Gaines, and his son Chris. But there were hundreds of other Jim Gaineses, and on weekends especially, the barn would overflow, not just with local freaks, but also from heads caravanning in from Fargo, Minneapolis, Chicago, Milwaukee, Omaha, and tons of smaller places around the region. Most of those visitors didn't stick around for the long term, but a few did. A few of those even joined or started bands. And the ones who didn't, you know, they still helped spread the word back when they went home. It wasn't just fans. Bands from outside of Sioux City also wanted to check out on the scene. Before long, psychedelic and glam bands from all over the central United States were trying to book stops into the barn. These ranged from moderate-level stars like Fanny and Big Star to more regional weirdos like Luna C, a trippy act from rural Nebraska. Basically, any given town in the Midwest, the weirdest band in town was trying to make their way to Sioux City. And the Sioux City crew were excited to have these visitors, of course, both for the excitement of bands swinging through and for the validation of their scene that this represented. But within the barn, it led to a few headaches. Managing a booking calendar that consisted of a few local bands who all knew and liked each other, well, that was no big deal. But integrating a rotating cast of national touring acts into that, especially given the logistical and legal requirements that came with some of them, that was a whole other thing. Big Tex Lowry quickly found himself uninterested and, frankly, probably incapable of keeping all these plates spinning in the air, and booking the barn became one other item in the portfolio of Lyle Derrick, Lowry's business partner. As word of the flowering of the Sioux City freak scene and the great bands it had spawned spread through the musical underground, another important type of attention fixated on the barn. Rumors started swirling that A&R men, talent scouts essentially, from major record labels like Elektra and Atlantic, were slipping into town to catch some of the big weekend shows. A rumor circulated, and I haven't been able to confirm this one, but it's definitely persistent, and everyone certainly acts like it's true. Anyway, rumor circulated that Citizen V from The Thwarted punched a man from Casablanca Records who approached him about signing the band. More confirmable, in fact, she confirmed it to my face, was the rumor that a guy from Atlantic spent a couple of weeks in October relentlessly trying to get Sammy Otto to talk to him about bringing the jawbones onto the label. With all of this bubbling up, Big Tex Lowry felt proud and nervous at the same time. Everybody thought it was funny when V from the Thwarted roundhoused the guy from the Casablanca. I mean, that was funny. Uh, but, you know... That kind of thing made me pretty nervous because the Casablanca guy could have pressed charges. And partly because, you know, the fact that there was a Casablanca guy there to begin with made everything feel like it was moving pretty damn fast. And then when some other butthole from Atlantic was essentially, 
I mean, he was essentially stalking Sammy Otto. And, you know, it was great. And I, I got to say, it was validating to have people from the majors sniffing around. But it made me pretty nervous because I knew just enough of what that world was like to know these people, these organizations cared a lot more about the dough than they cared about the music or the art or fucking Sioux City, right? I mean, Sammy Otto, she's a ferocious soul in her way, but she is not a person who knows who, who knows what to do when some fucker with an expense account has her under siege, you know what I mean? So Lyle, Derek, and I had this idea, and I, I cannot remember which of us thought of it first. I kind of wish I did because, you know, that would color the whole thing in terms of how I look at it today. But anyway, one of us thought that we should start our own record label, local to Sioux City, based out of the barn, just to cater to the bands that had sprung up. And, you know, like a chance for Sammy, chance for the Jawbones, the boys in the Visceral Realist to kind of get their feet wet in the business in a safe way before they jumped into the shark tank with the big boys, you know? And I mentioned just those two bands, by the way, because we all knew even then there was there was no way the Thwarta were ever, ever going to do anything that involved signing a contract with anybody. It was not going to happen. So anyway, whichever of us it was that had the idea, it was Lyle that ran with the ball. He sat down with the lawyers. I signed checks. I signed the papers. Pretty soon, it's all happening. Kyle Pie Records was born. And our first signee was Sammy Otto and the Jawbones. And we did that so I could stand next to Sammy and tell that guy from Atlantic he could go pound sand. And right afterwards, we signed the Visceral Realists. And it felt good, you know? It felt really good to be able to pay out small cash bonuses in both those cases. We eventually worked out this handshake deal with a thwarted to distribute copies of the 45s that they got around to recording, but they didn't sign shit. And, you know, it was great. The Realists, the Jawbones, got to work on recording singles pretty fast. Lyle suggested, and I thought this is a good idea, that it made sense to start with singles to generate income that we could use to finance the full albums. So the Realists cut a great version of Frozen Water. Um, the Jawbones, they laid down towers, and I was able to hand those discs, plus a DIY version of Thwarted's Stab the Fuckers. I handed them to Mick Ronson when he popped back into town in a short visit in January 74. This time I made sure I wasn't going to be in fucking New York fucking listening to Hello Fucking Dolly. The Ronson visit early in 1974 might represent the high water mark of the scene in the barn. Big Tex Lowry had worked through some channels to get a message to Bowie and Ronson telling them that they might be interested in seeing what they had accidentally wrought. And Ronson, with some time on his hands between projects, swung by to check it out. The three days he spent marked a heightened flurry of activity in the barn, with headlining shows by the three big acts and all of their lesser progeny filling in supporting slots. On the night the Visceral Realists headlined, Ronson jumped on stage and joined them for 45 minutes of encores. You got lightning in a bottle here, mate, he said to Danny Hoska on stage. Treasure it. Ronson couldn't stick around, but the good times rolled through the winter and early spring of 1974. The Visceral Realists and the Jawbones had each rush-recorded two singles for Cow Pie when the label was formed, and these hit the local market in February and sold briskly, at least by the standards of small Iowa independent record labels. 
Lowry and Derek moved forward immediately with plans to record full-length albums from both groups. And, of course, the scene at the barn continued to thrive. Music, art, and conversation were all in full flower throughout the winter. Even mild harassment from the Sioux City police, who suspected correctly that the barn was a hub of drug activity, couldn't stop the party. This isn't a thing I can prove, but let's just say that it seems very likely that Lyle Derrick probably eventually had to cut some deals with people within the Sioux City law enforcement community. Anything to keep the party going. And the party kept going. It reached a weird crescendo in the spring of 1974, when Sammy Otto and the Jawbones headlined a show on April 30th, which just happened to be Walpurgis Night. It was a little unusual for a major act like the Jawbones to be headlining a Tuesday night show, but, you know, not that unheard of. Sammy Otto had been agitating for months that she wanted the Jawbones to play Walpurgis Night, that she had something special in mind. So Lyle Derrick shrugged and booked the show. Evening started out normally enough, with opening sets by younger local bands The Ticks and Wingspan, both entirely typical of the large complement of competent but not earth-shaking psychedelic freak bands that had sprung up alongside the higher-profile Sioux City groups. By the time Sammy Otto and the Jawbones went on, around 10.30, the barn was buzzing with people, but not at the overflowing capacity that it usually reached for the weekend shows. You folks ready to pierce the veil? Otto asked the crowd as the band took the stage. Hang on to your hats, folks, because tonight you're going to see some shit. Then the band kicked into Towers, the cowpie single that they'd had some local success with. The first section of the set was pretty typical. After Towers, they moved through songs like It's All Candy and Extoplasm, all psychedelic howlers built around droning guitars and Sammy Otto's monumental voice. Standing on center stage in a glittering silver dress, holding majestic notes over the noise, she seemed maybe a little more otherworldly than usual, but still within the usual range. And then, after four songs, things got weird. Well, I knew you were going to ask about this. I mean, of course you were. So yeah, the Walpurgis Night Show. I've regretted it ever since. That night changed my life, and not in a good way at all. Every day since then, the focus of my life has been trying to undo the forces I unleashed back then. So tell me about it. Okay, I had good intentions. The whole thing then was that I wanted to expand everyone's mind. Through music, mostly, but through experience. I guess music was part of that experience, but so was the stage show. So, at the time I thought, what would expand people's minds more than if I was able to bring up an otherworldly spirit on stage at a show. I... Okay, look, I don't look at the world exactly this way now. At the time, I was thinking super clearly, and I had this idea. You can see this a lot in William Burroughs, and I think the guys in Led Zeppelin even kind of talked the same line, that, like, a really good rock show was a spiritual event. Like literally a spiritual event and that the people's love and excitement created a literal energy and that like as a leader of the show on stage i was like a high priestess and could harness that energy and like i said this isn't how i look at stuff now at least not exactly but then i believed it i guess i believed that on stage especially in the barn 
which was like this holy place, I'd have access to a lot of spiritual power that I could use to control pretty much any spirit I could bring up. There's this idea in magic, if you can't put it down, don't bring it up. I thought that with the energy of a crowd behind me, there was no limit to what I could put back down. And it was Walspurgis night, one of these nights that when the veil is thinnest. So I thought we'd play a few songs to warm the crowd up. And then with a good head of energy, I'd conduct a summoning ritual on stage. I mean, it sounds like a hell of a piece of showmanship, if nothing else. Just the ritual itself would be enough to blow some minds, I figured. Make a circle out of salt on the stage, burn some offerings, the band's playing an extended vamp while this is going on, recite the incantations, feel my voice changing as I did that. That on its own would be enough to make people question some things. But then, then when a being from a higher realm manifests on stage, I figured that'd really be something special for everyone. And of course, I would just send it on its way. I mean, sure, that sounds pretty easy. Did it work? Do you know what hubris is? The summoning ritual went really well, both as a magical ritual and as, you know, stagecraft. I could feel the atmosphere in there getting weird and electric as soon as I drew the salt circle. And I could see people in the crowd freaking out as I did the incantation. And then... And then what? And then a terrible thing entered our world from that salt circle. I was so stupid. I was playing with forces I didn't even start to understand. And people who do this stuff responsibly do it after decades of study in great libraries. And here I was, the, this 22-year-old girl who'd read a couple books I bought by mail. And I could feel it. I'm not going to say its name. I could feel it start to enter our plane as I did the incantation. And right away I knew it was going to be more than I could handle. But the thing with stuff like this is that once you started, you can't stop. You, leaving a door half open is the worst possible thing you could do. So I kept it up, even though I knew I was in trouble. I could even see it starting to take form, this demented, shadowy shape that's it's really hard to describe. I don't know if the crowd could see it, but I could for sure. Maybe some of the more sensitive people in the audience. That, uh, that sounds really fucking terrifying. When it fully manifested on our plane, there was this rush of, I don't know, anti-energy. It was like a big whoosh. And then all the power in the barn cut out abruptly. No instruments, no sound system, no lights. The crowd started freaking out. And I, I just felt so cold. I could feel like hard, scaly hands grasping my heart inside my chest. Uh, I, I do have to say, I talked to Teddy Lowry. He says that uh, a couple of fuses blew while you were in mid-set, probably because you were pushing the PA system so hard. <sighs> Big Tech's Lowry's full of shit. He can be a real deer, but he's full of shit. A blown fuse doesn't make hundreds of people run out of a building in raw terror. And that's what happened. Sammy Otto remains convinced that dark forces were at work in her life after this show. And uh, we will get more into that next week. That night, the crowd did indeed leave the building in a hurry after the lights went out. 
Whether or not they were in terror, well, that's a tougher thing to determine 50 years later. What is clear, looking back at the sources at the time and talking to people who were there other than Sammy Otto, is that the next day there was a lot of buzz. Everyone had been waiting for a Jawbones show to go over the top on weirdness, and one finally had. And let's be clear, the consensus was, that was pretty fucking awesome. Maybe a little freaky, but pretty fucking awesome. Next week, no golden age can last forever. Maybe it was the dark forces summoned by Sammy Otto. Maybe it was human nature and the presence of a lot of cash flowing through. Either way, we will take a look at the cracks that started forming around the edges of the Sioux City freakout. In the meantime, as always, I would like to thank you for listening. Um, I love that people are sitting down and putting this into their ears, so thank you. And if you are digging this, um, please consider telling somebody about it. You know, as always, I want people to know Sioux City needs to have its day in the sun for being a place to rock the fuck out, even if it's 50 years after the fact. Maybe this will spring a renaissance. Who knows? Thanks. I'll talk to you next week. And in the meantime, be well. It was just the 4th of May. Everything had turned up grey We set off across the sea The thought it just occurred to me Oh, you could have a broken heart Without ever tasting love It was just the 5th of June She stared up across the moon She was several stories high She spoke up into the sky Broken